So we've been practicing together now for this day. And I'd just like to take some time to offer some reflections on the process of what we're engaged in. What it might mean for us, what might be significant about this journey, this process of entering into being on retreat as we sit, as we walk, as we practice being present, being awake so far as we're able. In many ways what we're concerned with here is something both simple and yet profound. Exploring what it means to be a human being. Something kind of obvious. We've all been doing it ever since we were born. And yet we haven't necessarily had the support, the encouragement, the opportunity to deeply contemplate what that means, to explore experientially what that means. To be a human being. It's kind of familiar words for most of us, human being. Could sometimes contrast that as one of my teachers would with a, a phrase uh, it seems more like some of the times we are more like human doings rather than human beings. We're so busy doing, we're so busy, we're so caught up in activity directed towards producing results, getting somewhere making something, the kind of consumerist, materialist orientation of our culture encourages and reinforces this, that this is what our life is about. And so this quality of being is not something that's necessarily valued or validated in our ordinary cultural context, in our society. It doesn't contribute very much to the GDP it seems, and therefore it doesn't really figure in the calculations and the conversations that often go on around what's important. And so when we do things like, you know, sitting around doing really very little, it seems, or walking back and forth going absolutely nowhere, at some level it seems pointless. Why on earth would I do this? And yet that may be exactly the point to begin to see what it is to be. Because I think it's a natural and very understandable human wish and desire or urge is that we seek for inner peace. We seek for a quality of calm, of well-being, of freedom from conflict or contradiction. And yet we don't necessarily know how that comes about. One of the things when we arrive on a retreat that's maybe not everyone's wish or intention, but it seems pretty common nonetheless, that there's a wish and a hope that the mind could be quiet. I don't know if anyone's had that kind of thought during the day at any point. I wouldn't mind if my mind, I mean, I wouldn't mind is probably putting it a bit sort of less strongly than we might have said it ourselves. I'd really rather like it if my mind would be quiet. It's interesting, isn't it, to contemplate that. So many people associate quietening our mind with meditation. And of course, that is part of what we're concerned with here. 
Of course, there is an operation you can have that will quieten your mind completely. But it's not what we're here for, is it? We're not looking for a spiritual lobotomy. And yet, sometimes we relate to our inner experiences if we just want to cut it off. Just stop it. Inner experience can be painful, can be frustrating, can be exhausting. And it's, of course, understandable that we come into a situation like this that speaks of the dimensions of uh, spirituality or inner development, meditation, with a, with a sense, with a hope, with perhaps a longing that, yes, maybe there is a possibility for peace, for quiet, for a sense of deep inner ease and well-being in the midst of the challenges and the vicissitudes, the complications of our lives. And this activity that goes on in our minds, we find ourselves often so weary of it. So, oh, do I have to sit and watch my mind do this again and again and again? So part of what happens here when we engage in this practice is that we encounter the condition that we're in. And part of the condition that we're in, for most of us, is that we're trying to be in a different condition than the condition we're in. That our condition has in it this sense of this is the wrong condition. I should be in a different condition. I'd like to be in a different condition. I'd like to be in a condition that's calm, that's peaceful, that's quiet, that's at ease, that feels well all the time. And Hmm. Of course, why wouldn't we? Sounds kind of good. But this sense that somehow the condition we're in is not where we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be somewhere else. This is something we need to contemplate, we need to reflect upon, we need to consider, because in some way, of course, we can't be in any other condition than where we are. This is where our life has brought us. All the circumstances and conditions that have made up our life bring us here. If they'd been different than they were, they'd have perhaps brought us somewhere else. But they weren't, and therefore they didn't. Our life has been what it has been, and it has brought us here. And yet, nonetheless, and despite that, of course, we can have the sense and wish and expectation in some way that my experience should conform to what I wish for, to what I expected, to what I would have liked or preferred. And so many things we encounter on a retreat like this which aren't quite that. I might have had this idea of coming, oh, silent, silent retreat. It sounds so lovely, doesn't it? Silent retreat. It's going to be silent. And then, actually, precisely because there isn't really that much noise we get on the outside, we get to hear how much noise there is on the inside. And it's like, that's not quiet. Why won't that be quiet? And we realize actually our interest in outer noise is because it means an engagement, activity, business, busyness. So much, ac so much going on in our world. Have you noticed how it's getting faster and louder all the time? The sound of a a gunshot on a movie made 30 years ago. It's just a pop. These days it's much, much louder than the actual sound of a gunshot, if you've heard one, in real life. 
because we've kind of got desensitized. And there's a stronger and stronger input needed to get our attention, to capture our attention. And all of that because, in fact, that's the only way we get some distance or space from the inner condition that's not at ease. We want, at some level, to be distracted. Distraction arises here and we kind of feel, oh, it's difficult. I don't want to be distracted. I want to do the meditation. At least some of the time we might feel that way. But I think distraction is an interesting word because actually it's not distraction, it's attraction. We're attracted to other things than what we're trying to be attracted to. I'm trying to be attracted to my breath, but actually sometimes it's not that attractive. There's not that much going on. It just goes in and out and in and out. It's like, so? And yet those thoughts about what I'm going to do next week or what happened two months ago or two years ago or what somebody said or didn't say, they're attractive and I'm attracted. And it's kind of interesting to use that word, I think, because it gives us a different sense for what's happening rather than I'm distracted. It's kind of like a sort of a failure, isn't it? I should have been able to be undistracted. At least that's what they told me at school when the teacher sort of swung their ruler around and, okay, concentrate. Okay. We kind of, sometimes we're in there with ourselves in meditation, swinging around the, the ruler inside going, concentrate, you. And it doesn't work that way, we find. We're attracted. We're attracted. We're attracted. We're pulled. Attraction. It's like a pull. I'm pulled to here. I'm pulled to there. And we experience this. We feel this. It's not comfortable. It's not easy. All the noise that's going on around it. There's not just all those pulls and pushes of attraction. But there's also the pull to somehow not be caught up in all of that. I once um, had the opportunity to spend some weeks on retreat in the summer. And I thought... No offence to anyone from this country, but the summers aren't that sunny and warm generally, so I'll go somewhere sunny and warm. I went to south of France. I had a lovely cabin, some good friends who were going to cook the food. And I was just looking forward to this sunny summer retreat period. And when I went along, and pretty soon after I got there in the south of France in summer, it started to rain. And it was like, it shouldn't be happening. It's not what I planned. I could, have, I could have stayed where I live in Devon and had this. And somewhere along the line, I found myself standing outside my little cabin in the woods, in the rain, and my body was tight and my mind was tight. And it was like, I realized, actually, I'm trying to get the rain to stop by going, ah! or no, or it shouldn't. And of course, how much effect does that have on the rain? We know. Very little. Very little. I mean, if one could really do it really intensely long enough, one might generate a little bit of heat, a little bit of the rain might evaporate, but it's not going to make a big difference, is it? And yet, internally, this process arises for us, and we see it, we feel it, we encounter it. It's really useful, it's really important just to become aware of the way we get into conflict with our inner experience as if somehow we were the author or the arbiter of what happens in here. 
in the same way it would be a little ridiculous as we were reflecting in one in the small group this afternoon how if we were trying to get the weather to be different than it is it just wouldn't work sometimes what we see is ah okay this place in here this inner experience that feels noisy where there feels to be all this distraction or all these attractions that are in conflict with what my intention or my belief that my endeavor should be looking like here. Just coming into this. We're invited to consider what it might mean for us to let our life be as it is. And to let go of the demand that somehow it be other than as it is. That doesn't mean it can't change and won't transform or shape itself into different possibilities. But that we stop fighting where we are and see what would it mean for me to inhabit where I am. So much of our activity is trying to control not just inner activity, which might look like meditation or other things, but also outer activity, trying to somehow create or control a desirable inner experience. All the things that are important for us, so-called outwardly, are because of what we hope or fear they'll generate for us as our inner condition. It's not the thing itself or the circumstance itself that we want or fear, generally. It's how I imagine I will experience my inner life if that happens. Like it's like, I like ice cream and I might want an ice cream, but not so much for the ice cream, but because I have the sense that if I get an ice cream, I'm going to feel good. Not only will it taste nice, but I'll feel something enjoyable, delighted, happy, fulfilled. And uh, of course, ice cream is relatively uh, sort of... uh, moderate on the list of things we get engaged with in that way. So one of the things we see when we engage in a practice like this, and if we're doing it for the first time, it can be a little bit shocking because we can sort of, through a a certain effort and willpower, kind of coerce our mind to behave for a little period of time, most of us. And if we've not ever tried to do it for a whole day, we might even think that, oh, I'm getting quite good at getting my mind to be quiet for 20 minutes or 30 minutes or even 40 minutes. And that's good. It's, it's not a bad thing. But trying to do it all day, if we're doing it the first time, but equally if we've done it many times before, we probably get the opportunity to relearn this lesson that our mind is not in our control. We can't make it be a certain way. It's not that, of course... There aren't ways we influence how it is. But we can't just decide, I want my mind to pay attention to my breath and keep it there. I mean, let me know if you succeeded at that today. Because, great, it's, it does happen occasionally, but it's pretty rare. Um, you know, it gets reported every probably 100,000 retreat experiences. Um, someone says, oh yeah, I was present most of the day. It's like, wow, okay. Of course, sometimes... What we actually realize as we practice is that when we think we're really present, we're not so present. As we get more present, we start to realize just how not present we are. Have you noticed that? It's like, oh, I I used to think I, I was kind of present, but actually noticing how 
often and how quickly we move to something else, we move away into unconsciousness, or we get into that kind of reactive position with regard to our experience and just seeing how much that happens. This is actually a step in a wholesome direction because we're seeing what's going on. Beginning to see that maybe fighting with this process isn't what's needed. Trying to coerce it or control it isn't actually so helpful. So it's useful to notice within that the the kind of primary tendencies that carry or that drive so much of that activity that we find uncomfortable, that we might wish to be free from the suffering that's created or the difficulty or the distress or the sense of limitation that is created by the way the mind functions and acts. And seeing that what we call reactivity is, is mostly this movement of being attracted towards wanting something or the opposite of it, which is kind of being attracted or being feeling compelled to avoid not wanting something. In the sense of movement towards or away from, wanting to pull something towards us or move towards it. Wanting to push something away from us or move away from it. These movements are primary um, mental activities that reflect very basic and fundamental survival drives that have a place, that have a function in terms of keeping us alive, getting us, you know, so we move towards food and warmth and we move away from, you know, getting too hot, too cold or eaten, basically. It's just we we, we got to look for food and try and avoid becoming food. It's you know, sort of basic function at one level. And the other one is about temperature, not getting too hot or too cold because we only survive at a certain range. Fortunately, that's the kind of temperature that it mostly is, but we need to take some care with that. And so the, these kind of movements we see have a place, but when they get played out internally as a constant trying to get rid of or get hold of different experiences. It's really painful on the inside and if it's acted out in the world, what we see as these movements towards or away from in, in our mind and we start to see what happens to this. If I don't want that, I must have this. This, this plays out as, as greed, as selfishness as kind of an unquenchable hunger for more in the world. And we see the tragic consequences of that in our world, individually, collectively, globally. How those with power can and do accumulate so much more than they need. And those without it are left with not enough. Those without power are left with not enough. And we see the force of anger, of hatred, of the willingness to push away, to reject, to dismiss, to give no value to that which we find difficult, problematic, scary or threatening. And to be willing to harm or destroy others, whether beings or other forms of life, 
born out of just really not caring about them because the heart is closed. This is what happens when anger and hatred are enacted. It's not to say that those experiences of, of greed or selfishness or anger or ha and hatred, that they're somehow bad in and of themselves. Because they're actually, again, kind of natural responses. They're kind of distortions of a, an, an, an important and, and appropriate movement to bring ourselves in close contact with or to get what we need and what is wholesome for us and to avoid and protect ourselves from that which is harmful or dangerous to ourselves or to those we care about or care for. So it's not to judge those particular patternings and movements, but to see that when they're enacted in so many ways in the world, profound harm, distress, pain and suffering is created. So, so the practice is to begin to learn to handle those forces, those tendencies, those movements, seeing that they actually are our ability to handle them is fundamental to our own capacity for peace and happiness and equally is fundamental to the possibility of peace, happiness and justice in the world. And so what does it mean to learn to handle such forces? Initially, of course, we have to be willing just to see that they're there. Just acknowledge how uncomfortable it is. To see it's not something we can just wish away or decide, I don't like that, I'm not going to do it. And as some of you have, have mentioned in some conversations, you know, the way in our culture we're sometimes told it's not okay to have the experience you're having. And so we shut down our anger or our sorrow or our wanting. We kind of think, I shouldn't have the experience. And that's not true or helpful. If it's there, we need to actually acknowledge it. We need to turn towards it. We need to understand it and to see where and when it may be appropriate to act on such movements and calls or orientations and where and when it may be appropriate to not act upon them. To say, actually, no. This is something I don't need to follow through with here. I can just put this one on pause. It's not about judging the fact that they arise. But if we're mindful of them, if we're sensitive and present, when they come we actually have a space in which we can choose what we act upon. And this is the choice that we have, not the choice to have it arise or not. Although, of course, by cultivating and supporting wholesome tendencies, capacities in heart and mind, we can strengthen them. And by not supporting and not acting on those things that we recognize to be unskillful or harmful, we cease to give them support and they naturally start to become less strong over time. So, of course, we can influence them. But it's not that we somehow stop it happening. We just make choices about what we do with the fact that these forces are happening, are arising within us and, of course, in the world around us too, as they do. So it's useful to give yourself space with this, to give yourself room. Rather than trying to control the mind to get it to be quiet and try and force it to stay still, on the breath, when the breath seems really boring or just hardly even happening. It's just these kind of little trickling sensations now and then and big gaps between them and it's like, 
how can I pay attention to that? Now, of course, if we contemplate the fact that this breath is keeping us alive, we might start to get a little more interested if we contemplate the fact that one day that out-breath is going to go out and there isn't going to be an in-breath following it. Sitting by my friend in the hospital in London on Thursday, just watching his chest some of the time and watching the slow, slightly stuttering out-breath and then just waiting. And then another in-breath came in. It was mindfulness of his breathing in that case, but it was very clearly it's not a guaranteed event. And if we would perhaps sense our own breath like that, it might be a little bit more interesting to us. Because, of course, you know, when that last out-breath goes out, for most people it doesn't come with a sign that says, hey everybody, this is the last one, enjoy it. It just goes out. And that's it. So, sometimes we can reflect in this way as a way of bringing ourselves, generating a bit more interest. Sometimes we take things for granted that are not to be taken for granted. But at the same time, it is, it is tricky. It's difficult for us. So many other things arise that attract our attention, that call, that pull our attention. And, and with that, to, to kind of see it a, a little bit like training a puppy, I think is a really helpful metaphor. And if a puppy is going to live in the human world, it needs to learn to follow certain things. It needs to be able to follow and come back to its owner. And so you train a puppy. I don't know if you've ever done this. Um, but you put it beside you, and at least in, often commonly in, our, in, in English, I think one says, heel. Meaning, you know, stay by my heel. Does the puppy follow? Does the puppy stay? No way, it runs off at every opportunity. And what do you do? You go and grab it. You bring it back and you say, heel. Then it runs off to chase a butterfly. It runs off to sniff a flower. It runs off to water a tree. It runs off because it got frightened by a bigger dog or something. It just keeps doing that. But if every time you see it's done, you say, oh, come up, there you are. Come back over here. Oh, there you are. Oh, my gosh, you've done that? Hmm. Okay, come back over here. Sometimes we have to go clean up after the puppy. You know, that's part of the deal. But if we keep doing that, after a while the puppy starts to get a sense that, oh, this is a friendly sort of character. Maybe I'll hang out with them here. If every time the puppy runs away we go bad dog and give it a thrashing, pretty soon the puppy thinks, I'm getting away from that character as soon as I can. They're miserable and angry. And that's what happens with the, with the puppy if you train it in that way. And so too with our minds and our hearts. To see how they're attracted, how they're moved, how essentially they are not trained. What counts for training in our world is more like feeding information. If you just feed a puppy and don't exercise it, it gets unhappy. Its body is not happy and it's not happy if you just feed it and don't exercise it. In our culture, we mostly treat our mind as something you feed and you don't exercise. Most information and learning to manipulate information is like feeding it. Because that's the stuff it just wants to gobble up. What we're doing here is training it. Turning, learning how 
for the mind itself to handle its own activity. Developing its capacity, it's like strength in terms of exercise, to be able to hold the charge and the force that emerges within our experience that compels us sometimes to do this or don't do that, say this or don't say that. And until we learn to handle that, we will be coerced and carried by the forces that have been generated unconsciously and are often operating involuntarily. And we can't just decide to turn them off. But we can understand how to handle them and start to relate to them in a way in which they start to lose their power. So part of what's really important with this is to be encouraging, to be kindly with ourselves. If we find that this is not easy, what we're doing. And just to know, it's simple, but it is not easy. It's really hard. Very, very, very few people, as a proportion of all people, will ever spend even a single day doing something like this. And probably, if we weren't all here together, if we'd all been doing this by ourselves in a room, quite a good number of us would not have lasted even this long. We'd have gone home, we'd have thought, no way, thank you. That's why we do it together, because we support each other. It's so important. And that's, again, because it's not easy to do this. But it is possible. It is possible for us to actually cultivate a heart and mind that can hold, that can handle the forces that come out of very primary biological evolutionary survival mechanisms mechanisms that get shaped by our culture, our society, our conditioning into patterns of unhelpful mental behavior. And so it's, it's good in this to hold a sense of kindness and forgiveness also for the process. In the end, there are no failures in a journey which we're seeking to learn. If we're trying to get a certain experience or have a certain outcome, of course we can fail and most reliably we will. But if we're seeking to learn from the process, irrespective of what happens, there is no failure. There's either we try something, we find it's useful. That's great. It's useful. Or we try something, we find it's not useful. Oh, but we just learned something. That's not useful in this situation. That's useful. Does that make sense? Do you follow that? If we have that attitude of learning, like we're not, we're adults. And there's a strange thing that suggests once your body's grown up, you're supposed to have figured it out, this whole thing called being alive. And everyone pretends that they have because everyone else would give them a hard time if they let on, if we all let on, that actually we don't really know what the heck is going on a lot of the time. We don't. But we pretend that we do because we kind of think everyone else must because everyone else is pretending just like we are that they do. Truth is they don't. We don't. In so many ways. And so rather than imagining that we've already grown up, we could say, oh, you know, before we were grown up, we were allowed to play and learn and make mistakes and get it wrong and try again. 
And that's the kind of environment we need to offer ourselves, create for ourselves, for this kind of practice to be really fruitful. We can learn and train and develop what it means for the mind to settle, to gather, to collect, to calm, to come into a unity, a reunification, in which there is a a quality of ease, of calm, of peace that is exquisite. But it doesn't happen quickly, nor does it happen through coercion. It happens through allowing all the disparate, the conflicted, and the confused elements of our life to come into this field of our wakeful, kindly, caring presence and be met there, and be held there, and have as a reference the sense of the body. We use that because all of what's going on, even though sometimes it seems mental or emotional, it also has a bodily element to it. Coming into the body and being with the breathing in the body, it's it's a framework in which we can begin to access what takes place in a way that's useful and that's workable. And so... As we practice in this way, as there begins to be some settling, some moments perhaps, in which there's some settling, we can start to feel, oh, okay, yeah, maybe something's possible here. Now we might start with just a sense of we've heard that maybe it's possible, or, you know, the stories, sort of great historical figures. And in a, in a way, you know, for me, referring to the Buddha, and we have here a sort of an expression of a, both a, an awakened expression of humanity in both a, a masculine and a feminine form. And of course, awakening is not gender dependent. And so all genders participate in this possibility. But because we have forms and images, it's kind of inevitable that they have certain associations for us. But most fundamentally, the association invited or evoked by having images such as this, is human beings. Human beings like you and like me, like us. This is possible for. And when I come in the evening to offer some reflections as I'm doing, I like to take a moment just to express my appreciation, my gratitude, my respect to the, the beings who've come before us, including the Buddha. the many awakened beings who've come before us who have enabled this path and this teaching and this practice to be passed into our living generation and we of course are the generation that will pass it to the next so we're part of this sharing of something of human potential and possibility being brought into fulfillment into fruition And we see that there's a, there's a kind of a, and just noticing even what happens, it's just sometimes there's a moment. Maybe there's a few moments where we just settle. And there's a sense of possibility. Oh, this, this, doing what we're doing here, it might lead onward. 
It might lead towards what I'm interested in, even if I don't yet understand what that is or how that could take place. And if we start to find some trust, or even just the willingness to try it out and see, even if we're not sure it actually is possible, this quality of, of some kind of trust and a sense of possibility, then we can make some effort, we can engage. And as we engage, we start to find it is possible to be more present. As we're more present as a collectedness, a focusedness of mind and heart that begins to reveal itself as a clarity in which we start to see things in a way that lets us understand them. Not through our ideas or our conceptual models, but through the direct encounter with what's happening in our experience. And as we start to see and understand what's taking place, of course that deepens the sense of trusting. Or a faith, we could say. Not a kind of blind faith and belief, but a, a faith in the sense of, oh, there's something that's possible here that I see that can be done. You know, if you weren't sure if you could even spend a whole day in silence, because you'd never done it before, how could we know if we've never done it before? But then we've done it, we realize, oh, I can do that. Might not have been easy, but it's not impossible. And... And in that, then we engage again from that sense of possibility rather than from a sense of trying to somehow force an outcome or produce a particular result. So in this practice we understand wisdom, or the lack of it. Seeing what's actually happening, or the lack of seeing of that, is, is the core real issue. A kind of a, a blindness that we live enshrouded in. Because we haven't yet learned what it means to train this heart and this mind to see what it can see. And we start to see, we start to understand some of the personal patterns. What pushes and pulls us? What is it that I get grabbed by? Like we all talk about distraction or, as I said, attraction to things. But what are the things that particularly get me? Oh, it's these kind of things. We start to see that over time. things that get me wanting or the things that get me resisting. Oh, we start to learn, okay. Maybe we knew some of them already, but perhaps we see a little bit more what goes on in them. And one of the most common and I think for many deeply painful things is the way in which we can be judgmental or harsh towards ourselves. Measuring our performance here in a retreat against some idea or fantasy we have about what should or could happen. And not just measuring our meditation practice, like, but actually using that then as a basis for somehow evaluating ourselves. It's so common and so painful. So far as we imagine ourselves without quite conceiving it, base our, our, 
our humanity, our validity based on our performance, as if we really were a human doing, then if we don't perform, then somehow that reflects that somehow I'm not okay. And this can be so, so painful. But seeing this, now this classic thing that happens on retreats, where we imagine everyone else can do it, that I can't. And funny how many people have that very same thought. You know, here am I sitting and everyone else seems to be like they're just about fully enlightened Buddhas and I feel like an overcooked vegetable. Or we might notice the sort of hunger for contact. It's like, I want something, I want something. I don't know what it is that I want, but I want something, please. I've like, got this whole body and mind going on, but it's not quite what I want. And, you know, it's only ever when I'm on retreat that I find myself reading the labels on tea bags. I don't know if you've had a similar experience. Or we walked past the notice board. We walked past it coming into the sitting. We checked and read the notices. That's good. You've got to read them now and then. We encourage that. Then we walk back out. A little while later, we read them all again. Then, because walking isn't that entertaining, we think, I'll just go and check and see if there's any more notices on the notice boards. And it's like, feed me something. Give me something. I want entertaining. But we don't always see it. We often act it out. And just seeing that, huh? Or the, the kind of the, the tendency towards impatience. Or getting bored with things. You know, we get bored with our breath. Boring breath. How many times have I been told, oh, the breath is boring. It's like, as I said, it's only boring if you're assuming it's going to come back in the next moment. And if you ever had your head underwater and weren't sure if it was going to come up, then breath gets really exciting, really interesting. It's like, I want to get out of the water so I can breathe. And we sit sometimes and we're thinking, oh, this meditation is going on forever, you know. Those guys at the front, they've probably fallen asleep. We've been here for hours. I can't wait. You know, please ring the bell, ring the bell. And the bell rings as, ah, oh, oh, that feels so good. You know, it's really interesting. The moment after the bell rings, it's really not any different than the moment before. It's really the same. Except the bell's rung, and somehow maybe something is finished. But it's the same body, same mind. You're still actually even sitting there. Even before you change your posture, it feels better already. Have you noticed that? So even the thought that says, then I'll get to change my posture... But just the fact that I know I'm going to get to change my posture even before I do it. And why is that? Often it's because the wanting for the bell to ring stops. It's not actually the absence of the bell. It's the wanting it that's so painful. It's not even that my knee hurts. It's the wanting it to stop. Sometimes more painful than the actual thing. And of course we sort of project this idea that well, this isn't quite right because sitting, it's kind of, oh, I've had enough of sitting. Can't wait to do some walking. You know, okay, the bell rings, great. We're out there, we're walking. We're walking, we're still walking. How long have we been walking? We look at our watch, it's a bad idea. Don't look at your watch because you've only been walking for five minutes and there's another 25 to go. You know, oops, I wish I didn't look at my watch. Oh, damn, okay, walking, walking. And so I think, oh, sitting. Can't wait to go to the next sitting. It's going to be good in the sitting. So we were just happy to get out of it, but then we want to get back into it. 
Have you noticed how we do that? We start thinking lunch, 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 lunch is coming, lunch is coming. And yet as soon as we have that plate in front of us, we taste it and it's good, or we don't like it, or it's kind of indifferent, whatever it is, we stop tasting it and thinking about it. We just start shoveling it in while we're thinking about something else. That kind of momentum that keeps us wanting to move on. Notice it. There's no end to it. It goes on forever. And it's exhausting and frustrating and actually kind of painful. So what our practice invites us to do here is just notice what's happening. Coming back again and again to the body, breathing, sitting, to the one step after another of walking or the simplicity of just standing. All of that is both important for this gathering, this cultivating, this collecting of the this capacity of presence, of wakefulness, of mindfulness, of sensitivity and openness that deepens as we do this, as we keep, in a way, countering the tendency to move away or towards something else by coming back, by letting go of what is pulling us away and letting be whatever is telling us I need to get rid of it. And therefore, we find ourselves more and more here. And there's something about this here-ness and this now-ness that speaks to us, that we recognize, even if we haven't really known it consciously before. Because it is something fundamental to what it means to be what it is that we are as human beings. So what we also notice as we practice is, of course, the experiences change. Just as the weather changes. Walking this morning after the walking instructions and it started to rain. And it started to get stronger. It was like, you know, how long to stay in the rain? Well, we could all make our own call. There's no right. But for some who stayed, at some point the rain stopped and it cleared. And it's like, oh, actually, that was okay. So often we kind of move away from a situation, not because it's become too bad, but because we're afraid that if we don't, we'll be stuck there forever. And we're never stuck anywhere forever, because nothing that arises can sustain forever. Whatever arises changes. And so we can start to leave some space for things to move according to their own nature, as they do. The difficult things that come, they change, they move on making space for what's here, becoming interested in what's possible. We see also how we, we kind of we want things to be easeful, to be comfortable for us, and so often they're not. Not comfortable for our body, not comfortable for our hearts, not comfortable for our minds. But we don't put that on the meditation brochure when we're inviting people to come on the retreat. Come along. It's going to be uncomfortable, miserable, painful and frustrating. You know? And there's a waiting list. Well, there is a waiting list. And it is all of those things, but not just that, of course. It's only those things, not because of the meditation retreat, because those things are part of our life. And in a retreat, 
we get to face them more directly and see them perhaps more clearly. One of the significant things about this is that we imagine somehow if we got it right, if we did it perfectly, this life or this retreat or just this meditation, then it would always feel good all the time. It would never be scary or painful or uncomfortable or embarrassing or confusing. And that is just not true. Now the fundamental teachings of the Buddha, fundamental understandings of this Dharma, these teachings of wisdom and compassion, is actually sometimes things are really difficult. Nobody had the same life as you did, or I did. But everybody's life has those things that are difficult in them. Different things in different ways, no doubt. Not getting into saying who's more or less got the more or less difficult life. That's a pointless and painful thing to try and compare or think about. But every human being encounters these things that are difficult. And what that says is that it's not because we did it wrong. Or that anybody else did it wrong for that matter. It's because this is inherent in the nature of what it is to be. A sensitive, caring, feeling being, organism, living creature that we are. We can feel what is lovely and delightful, beautiful and uplifted. And precisely because we have the capacity to feel that, we will also feel that which is painful, distressing, disturbing and concerning. And they go together. And so, to not judge or blame yourself for the fact that this is how it is. Because you experience this as every other being does. Not as a punishment or because of a failure, but simply because this is part of the texture and the nature and the fabric of life that also includes, as I said, what is beautiful, what is bright, what is uplifted and touches and fills our heart in ways that we wish for and long for. And as we come close to this, as we stop putting so much pressure on the experience, as we stop putting so much pressure on ourselves, we also start to feel and sense quite directly, start to see the, the way in which it's all related, it's all connected, how we're not separate from our life, from each other, from our experience, from anything ultimately, and the way we often imagine ourselves to be. There is a, a vast matrix of intimate interconnectedness in which we are always being affected and we're always affecting what is around us. And we can't sort of somehow separate that off and just try and take care of a bit of it. Somehow we need to open to taking care of all of it because if we care about any of it, ultimately we find we need to care about all of it because we can't separate one bit off. And by bit, I mean equally like one person or one part of person or, or my family or my community or my species. We can't separate that off from the well-being of all that lives. And we are not separate because we are touched by and we do touch the life that is around us. 
And this really understanding is a is an invitation and a gateway to a simplicity and an immediacy of life. That has a vastness to it and a beauty, equally as it has a a tenderness and at times a rawness. And to deeply understand this, to know this, to see what this this wisdom might offer our life and our world. This is what the practice of insight meditation and the, the Dharma teachings, as we call them, the teachings of the Buddha. This is what they are pointed to, the teachings of, of wisdom that come from the place of awakening, which is what Buddha means. It's not a title or a deification, it's a simple statement of awakefulness. It means that, to be awake. And awake to our life, which is what we're practicing here. So let's just sit quietly together for a few moments to finish. So may we all, in our practice here together and in our lives, may we deepen in this dharma of possibility, of peace and of caring for life, for our own well-being, for the welfare of all beings and all that lives and all that is. 